Without further ado, I'd like to introduce Richard Hain uh, to give a talk this evening. Uh, Richard is a medical professional. He's trained in paediatric palliative care. Um, and he's one of the pioneers of paediatric palliative care in the UK. Um, but in recent years, uh, as is often the case for palliative care professionals, he's been very interested in ethical issues, particularly around end of life, and he's taken that, that interest to the uh, to the next level with a master's in ethics and theology, and now enrolled in a in a DPhil here in Oxford. Uh, so when we corresponded earlier in the year, um, which is involved in um, ethics committees, both at the Royal College and in Wales, uh, I suggested it would be great if he'd like to present some of his work um, to to both a, a clinical and philosophical audience here in Oxford. So. So it's my very great pleasure to invite Richard to talk to us this evening. Thanks, Richard. Thank you very much indeed. I'm guessing that you can hear me if I'm, even if I'm not too close to the microphone. You have to nod if you can, otherwise. <laughs> okay, lovely. Thank you for that very kind introduction. Um, so you've heard most of what's relevant about my background. Um, most of you will have heard that so I'm a, I'm a, a, a doctor. I uh, decided I wanted to specialise in children's palliative care as a medical student, in fact, so I spent my whole uh, training at a time when you could be much more flexible than you can now uh, as a doctor training to do children's palliative care, and that involved uh, training in paediatrics and specialising in children's cancer, um, and then I trained again in adult palliative medicine, and then I did my um, research training in uh, um, pharmacology, specifically pharmacology of opioid medications. Um, the interest in ethics, I think, was always there. Um, as Dominic has pointed out, I think it's true for people in intensive care and neonatal intensive care as well. We're dealing with people who are at that terrible time in their lives. Ethics is a living, breathing thing. These decisions we make mean something to real people who are in front of us and who are impacted by the decisions that we make in discussion with them, or sometimes on their behalf. So. Although the interest was there, I think it, it was sort of uh, crystallized by a couple of things. I mentioned one of them to Julian already. One of them was when he, he gave a talk as part of the UKCEM conference in Cardiff a few years ago. Um, and he was talking about welfareism. And he was describing uh, very, again, very clinical, very practical, ethical decisions that I recognized. They were the sort of decisions that I'm making on my, in my day-to-day -day work. Um, the other then, a little bit later, but still some time ago, and it was the Royal College of Pediatrics and Child Health annual conference. In those days, it was always held at York University. And uh, in the old days, pediatrics was a fairly small specialty. Pediatrics, study of children. We, you know, you, if you specialised in children, that was as far as it got. Nowadays, that's not the case. And we have oncologists, we have cardiologists, respirologists, and so on and so forth. Neonatal intensivists, other um, um, pediatric intensivists for older children care and so on and so forth. So we actually, that what used to be a fairly well-defined meeting every year has been gradually subdivided. And this particular year, we decided to have a joint um, meeting between uh, the intensivists, the people who do intensive care, the palliative care doctors, uh, and the community pediatricians who care for children with long-term disabilities. And one of the speakers got up and gave a very challenging presentation. And one of the things he was saying was that there are some 
children, he wasn't talking about infants specifically, children who are so disabled that they should not receive intensive care. And actually, most people in the room agreed. Most people in the room agreed that there were some kids for whom intensive care was not appropriate. But as the discussion unfolded, it became clear that they thought that for two very different reasons. One group thought that the children who were severely disabled, we shouldn't be wasting resources on those children. And one group said, these, these are not human beings. These, are, these children are uh, no more aware of themselves. They're no more um, people uh, than, than some animals, rather less. So that was one group, one group that felt that somehow the disability meant that we were wasting resources by using intensive care. And then there was this other group. They agreed in the conclusion that these were children who shouldn't have intensive care. But they felt it for a different reason. Their reasoning was, these kids have had enough trouble already. Why should they continue to suffer? Why should they have the pain and the discomfort of being ventilated time and time and time again? as they got chest infection after chest infection. Why shouldn't they just be allowed to die when, they were, when that was what they were trying to do? It was almost as though one group was saying, this, these people almost don't warrant the intervention. And this other group was, well, these are kids, people who deserve something better. These are kids who deserve something better. And that made me think, I, I was one of this group. I, I felt, I very much feel, that I think most of us in palliative care feel that good palliative care is an alternative, very often is an alternative to uh, uncomfortable, invasive uh, ventilation. It's a kinder thing to do. But it made me realise that when we're talking about value, we, we, we have very, very different ways of thinking about it. And I found myself thinking, what is the origin? What's the basis for that? And of course, I very quickly came uh, across the uh, medical ethical principles. And we're going to talk about principalism, which is the sort of dominant medical ethical paradigm at the moment. Um, and I want to suggest to you that it is a blood pressure cuff. And I hope you're thinking, what's the connection here with ethics? This is what's called a sphygmomanometer, and um, it's the rather elderly-looking one. You, what you do, for those of you who haven't had it done, this band goes around your arm, this is pumped up, and you measure the pressure on that um, uh, mercury reading by there. That's, this is a, a, an old version of it. When people first started using these to measure blood pressure in children, they found that children's blood pressure was lower than adults' blood pressure. And it turned out that that was for two reasons. One is that children have lower blood pressure. But there was another one. And that was that if you use this, an adult-sized cuff, to measure blood pressure in a child, the, the cuff is too big for the child, and so it will misread. It will underread the actual blood pressure. And what I would like to suggest to you today is that our approach to medical ethics, as, it currently, as we currently think of it, our rather analytical account of medical ethics through principalism, is a badly fitting cuff. 
It's a tool that was designed to evaluate something in adults, which at the moment we're using rather too uncritically to evaluate something in children. And I'm going to suggest that that finds its most extreme form in infants who are the children most different from adults. We'll return to this metaphor. So I'm going to talk a little bit about what the, uh, the infant is not. Talk a little bit then about what the infant is. And finally, just speculate a little bit about what a proper, proper-sized ethical cuff might look like. What might an infant-shaped, an infant-sized medical ethic look like? Okay, so let's start by talking about what the infant is not. Lots of people have a lot of ideas about what the infant is not. These are anecdotal, non-attributable. The first one, a baby is not, a newborn baby is not a sentient being. This was said to me at a community ethics meeting. It wasn't said to me, it was said to the presenter by a chap who obviously knew a bit of philosophy. And he was, was getting it, he was talking about euthanasia at the time. And he said that a newborn baby is not a, sent, a sentient being. Therefore, and his argument came out. The second one here, the interests of an infant are the interests of its parents. That was said to me, um, I, I chair, as um, uh, Dominic mentioned, I chair our clinical ethics committee in Cardiff. And that, this was said to me by one of the members of the committee, who later on, by the way, became a journal of a distinguished uh, ethical journal known as the Journal of Medical Ethics. It wasn't obviously. Um, and again, it was the starting point for his, his, uh, his ethical argument. The interests of an infant are the interests of parents, obviously. Now we can move on with the discussion. Uh, this last one was actually John Rawls, but it could have been, could have been lots of people. The child uh, is defined, has not yet mastered the art of perceiving the person of others, discerning their beliefs, intentions, and feelings. Now, this is an interesting one, because uh, none of these actually refers to reason in itself, but they all refer to awareness, an idea of the child, the infant, knowing something about itself. But the key thing about all of these people is that these were not the conclusions of their arguments. These were the starting points of their arguments. So it wasn't that somebody had thought, well, let's think about what, what we mean by sentient and what it might mean. Oh, yes, what do we know about newborns? Therefore, a newborn is not a sentient being. They just said, well, we know that. Now let's move on. Peter Singer did not fall into that trap, but he did come to a similar conclusion. Self-awareness, he says, is not to be found in either the fetus or the newborn infant. Neither the fetus nor the newborn infant is an individual capable of regarding itself as a distinct entity with a life of its own to lead. And he then moved on from that to saying, because of that, self-awareness, he said, um, he said, the reason, I, the reason I'm so sure that infants don't know anything about themselves, aren't aware of themselves, is because of this test. And this was the um, mirror test. Self-awareness, he says, is sometimes linked to knowing that when you look in a mirror, you are seeing yourself rather than another being. Human children less than one year old typically fail the mirror test. But by the time they're 18 months old, most can pass it. Faint praise indeed. Now, of course, those of you who know Peter Singer and know his, his uh, wider ideology know that this is just part of his 
his more global bioethic and the point he's actually making and that is slightly disguised by the, um, uh, the, the dots there is what he's trying to say is monkeys can do that Bonobos can do that so there is a sense he argues in which Bonobo apes are more aware of themselves uh, than the human infant but actually he depends his entire argument about infanticide on this one conclusion now, the principles of biomedical ethics is the full name for principalism, which I'm guessing most of you have come across. Um, principalism, or the four principles, or um, what, what it has lots of different names. But this is, the, this is the way that we teach ethics to medical students at the moment. It's also the way that most clinical ethics committees structure their discussions. And I'm not actually sure that's what Beecham and Childress intended for it. It was written um, as a Vardy Meekham, not a pharmacology textbook. By that I mean they weren't trying to generate a single coherent moral philosophy, moral theory. What they wanted to do was to bring to clinicians in the heat of battle some understanding of moral theory that was going to serve them well in a practical sense. And to be fair, it does do that. But it is important, and this audience doesn't need to be reminded, that it, that it isn't a principle itself, it's not a theory. It's an eclectic mix of theories, and inevitably, therefore, there can be conflicts. And two of the ones that it draws on that are most relevant to our discussion this evening are utilitarian consequentialism and deontology. There are actually, it's called the four principles. You will immediately spot that I've only put three. Uh, and there's two reasons for that. One is that four doesn't fit easily onto a slide, whereas three does. Um, there's a, third, a, a second reason, which is that beneficence and non-maleficence, beneficence, of course, doing positively doing good things, non-maleficence, avoiding doing harm. What they have in common is the concept of interest. Um, and for our purposes, it's that concept that's most important. There are clearly important moral differences between beneficence and non-maleficence and ethical debates that need to be had. But for our purposes, the key thing here is that they're linked by interest. Three principles. Justice, which in medicine is generally considered uh, an issue of fairness. So in other words, uh, I should neither expect to receive an undue proportion of um, a doctor's time uh, nor should I expect that um, I will be arbitrarily treated differently on the basis of my age, my sex, my gender, uh, my, uh, my colour, my uh, sexual orientation. It is an issue primarily of fairness and therefore has at its heart some concept of society. Second, now, uh, it was interesting, Dominic, uh, that you had, you, you suggested that um, that there was a hierarchy of these principles and that autonomy was at the top. Um, and I didn't have time to change the order here. <laughs> but I would be interested to know on what, where you felt, why you felt that this had some hierarchy. Beecham and Childress actually are quite anxious, I think, to distance <coughs> themselves from the idea that one of these principles is more important than the others. I think you're right that in practice it is privileged and it's often privileged, I think, because of cultural <coughs> pressures. It's privileged more in the UK, the US, and Australia, for example, than it is in India or Africa. 
And then thirdly, we have beneficence and non-maleficence. Well, these are the three principles that, uh, that make principalism. Uh, this is what we teach medical students. This is the structure that we have for analysing clinical ethical problems in practice. People are a bit... Um, a lot of people are becoming rather s cynical about it now and suggesting we need another way of doing it. But that cynicism isn't really based on the principles behind it. I think the cynicism is usually based on the idea that there should be a single, that there should be any single structure or strategy. But you can already see the problem as far as the infants are concerned. This is a badly fitting cuff. The infant isn't rational and it isn't independent. It's not rational in the way that an adult is rational. And it's not independent because it can't survive on its own. So justice becomes a bit difficult because if justice depends on the concept of society, the relationship between society and individuals relies largely uh, in Beecham and Chardress on this idea of reciprocity, this idea that uh, each of us in society should do for other people in society what they are able to do back for us, which is a great universalizable principle. But it does assume that the people who are going to do that are, uh, are rational um, and able to reciprocate. Now I know, I know that Rawls has found a way of trying to account for that. Uh, it's Rawls's account that is at the back of Beecham and Childers. But the account is, I mean, it's a very good fudge, but it is in effect a fudge. I mean, he just proposes a, a non-ideal set of non-ideal solutions. The ideal is still somebody who's rational mm. and independent. So the infant might get in there, but if it, if it does, it gets in because, you, 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 because of the fudge <coughs> factor. Respect for autonomy. Well, autonomy, uh, yet an another one of the things I've learned in uh, philosophy and theology is that almost every word is, can be argued by, uh, uh, in lots of different ways. But most con conceptions of autonomy suggest that it is the individual making themselves in some way subordinate to the rule of reason. The idea that you choose to do what makes sense, that, that you know, how you, you conceive sense to be at that time. And also that you, can, you are able to do that in a way that is not influenced by other people. And again, in medicine, we tend to emphasize the second of those, actually. We tend to say whether what you want is reasonable or not isn't the point. The point is, are you able to make it on your own, make a decision on your own? There's, an there's a, a conflation, if you like, between the concept of autonomy and the concept of freedom. But neither of those applies to the, the infant. The infant isn't rational or independent. So uh, it, it's very hard to see uh, a meaningful way in which the infant can be autonomous, isn't it? And finally, on this side of it, if I'm right that interests lie at the heart of beneficence and non-maleficence, and I think I am, then it becomes important to try to say what the interests of the individual are. Well, actually, it's extremely difficult to separate the interests of the infant from those of others for two reasons, and we're going to come back to them later. But one is that an infant can't express its own interests, so subjective interests are very hard to know. And the second is that even if you could, even if you could access what the infant wanted, it would still be very hard 
to say how those could be separated from the interests of those around it in the family. This is a point that um, Dominic makes, and we'll come back to it later. So Beecham and Childress have a problem. Their pre three principles don't seem to work when it comes to if they're, when they're looking at the um, uh, the, the, uh, the infant. But they recognise that and they say, well, yeah, okay, fair enough. The infant doesn't fit into any of these. It, it doesn't really, these principles don't really work for the infant. But, they say, virtually everyone agrees that actually, actually people should look after kids. Uh, this is one example of that assertion that they make. But they make it at several points. We, the way that relationships work, the way that duty works, is that you have a, uh, the nature of the relationship that you have with somebody can dictate what you should, how you should treat them. And the most obvious example of that, I'll give two examples, one is ties of blood, ties of family, uh, which fits with children, and the other is, is contract, written, actual or implied. So that's sort of, if you like, it's a trump card. Um, they, they've said, yeah, okay, three principles, the, the three principles I've described don't really work for infants, but actually infants are a special case We've got a we've got we've got another explanation for why you should value them, and it's a relationship based on duty and relationship. So the infant's not independent. I don't know that, that needs proving. It seems to me that, that that's pretty obvious. I mean, however you look at it, the, the infant doesn't survive on its own and can't make can't actuate any decisions it may be able to make, even if it can make them. There is no way. That an infant can do anything significant morally on its own. And the infant isn't rational either, at least it's not rational in the sense that adults can be. But those are the very, account, the very characteristics that the blood pressure cuff that we use in medicine to measure medical ethics in practice agrees on as, as being important. <coughs> so, I hope I persuaded you. Current approaches to medical ethics, not all of them, but the ones that are mainly used by most people, are a badly fitting blood pressure cuff. They, they undervalue what they measure in infants. Okay. If that's true, then infants will always and inevitably be seen as less than adults because. That they are being measured against the yardstick that's been designed to measure what adults can do. Um, and a bit like the blood pressure, um, the, uh, it's true that children have a slightly lower blood pressure than adults do. It doesn't mean that there is no difference between them, but it does mean that we can't trust it on its own, as it currently stands, to evaluate that difference accurately. Okay, let me give you... Um, the first of two small detours. The story of Myrtle McGraw. Quick draw McGraw. Um, not quick draw in that she uh, drew guns, but she was very quick to draw conclusions. And if this was a particular conclusion she drew in 1941. And she did a, a famous study. Um, she took a series of neonates. I can't remember how many it was. It was a lot. Hundreds, I think. No, I'm wrong. 75. She took 75 newborn neonates and she wanted to find out whether they could experience pain. And so what she did was she took a pin and she poked them with it every few hours, in the first few hours of their life, and then she gradually reduced the frequency with which she 
hope, I'm assuming that she sterilizes the needle first, because um, I'm sure she wouldn't want to do them any harm. But, um, and she, what, she actually filmed them um, and filmed their response to being pricked with a needle. I hesitate, they, they, they didn't need any needle prick, this was just for the study. I, I, it, you know, but in these days of ethics committees, it's hard to imagine that it could get, could, uh, it could get through. Um, and she carried on doing that actually for some years. I think, she, I think from memory she did it up to they were about three or four years old. Um, it doesn't say why she stopped there. My, my theory is that that's when they started to hit back. Um, <laughs> um, the point that I'm making isn't about the ethics of the study, it's the conclusion that she, she drew from it, which was this. She filmed and she noticed that when you poke a neonate, a newborn, on the first day of life, it responds in a rather vague sort of way, it doesn't talk about it. Sort of generalised response. And then over time, it becomes more what we call focal. The child eventually um, begins, begins to be able to, you know, to identify where the pain is coming from and, as I say, perhaps eventually to hit back. But what you, uh, and she concluded from that that uh, she noticed that that was very similar to the way that adults change from when they're coming out of anaesthetic in reverse, of course. So in other words, when an adult is, is uh, anaesthetized, they don't respond at all. Um, as they wake up, they first of all have this generalized <coughs> response, and then as they, become, uh, as they become fully conscious, they have a more focal response. Uh, and that's true. I, I think even nowadays, I think that is a, a way that anaesthetists actually measure how light the anaesthetists here. No. Uh, but I think I'm right that they still, they still measure how deeply sleep somebody is by the uh, response that they will, the, the kind of generalized or focal response that they make. So she said, ah, I've shown that the way the infant changes over the first few months and years of life is very similar to the way that the adult changes as they are unconscious and waking up. So she, she concluded, what this tells me is that neonates cannot experience pain because they are experiencing analgesia roughly equivalent to that of a deeply anaesthetized adult. And over, over the period of the first few months and years, they uh, gradually acquire the skills and gradually they learn to experience pain. Now on that basis, if you are, if you are a surgeon called on to do an operation on a child, uh, on, a, on a newborn baby, and you've been told that newborn babies cannot experience pain, and you're faced with the option of giving them drugs that will put them to sleep, but also make them rather unstable, or doing it while they're awake, given that you know they won't remember it, and you've been told they don't experience pain, it's clearly going to be in their interests not to offer pain relief, not to offer anesthesia. And that's what people did for a long time for many, many years, until somebody realized that when neonates cried, that was because they were in pain. And in fact, when we go back and try and find out what it was that, how, how had Myrtle got it so wrong, Dr. McGraw got it so wrong, there were a number of things that she'd done. One was that she had um, observed something about the way the infant moved and assumed that what she was seeing was something about what the infant experienced. So she observed what the infant could do um, and said, if an adult were to do that, it would mean the adult couldn't experience pain. Therefore, it means that the infant can't experience pain. You can see where I'm going with this time. But the other thing was that she knew something about 
neonates. She knew that the nerves, when you're first born, uh, the nerves that transmit pain, all the nerves, are not quite normal yet. They're not fully developed. And so she said, well, not fully developed means they don't work as well as they will when they are fully developed. So this all makes sense now, she said. We know that nerves don't work as well in the first few weeks of uh, months of life. We know that, uh, from my observation, that it looks as though kids can't experience pain. Therefore, it all makes a good story, and she made her conclusion accordingly. The problem was that she was entirely wrong. This is what she said, by the way. Some infants only a few hours or days old may experience no overt response to cutaneous irritation, such as pinprick, this period of hypesthesia. So she's moved in that first sentence from saying infants don't move, in the second sentence to saying infants can't feel. It's an entirely fallacious logical step, but it was based on what she thought she was observing and what she thought she already knew. Unfortunately, what she didn't realise was that the nerves that weren't fully developed, it turns out, are the nerves that transmit pain relief rather than pain. So in other words, the infant certainly experienced um, pain differently from an adult, but rather than being less, it was sadly more. Nobody was to blame here. This wasn't somebody wanting to hurt infants. This wasn't somebody who wanted to do infants harm. But the effect was that infants were certainly harmed in the making of this study. So to summarise, what she said was, it's morally permissible, you could even say it's morally mandatory, given what, we, what she thought, um, to withhold analgesia from the infant because the infant cannot experience pain. And of course, parallel there is with Peter Singer's conclusion, which is this. <coughs> morally permissible to kill an infant at the request of its parents because an infant is unaware that it is... Now, I thought I'd change that. Um, I've changed that to living which is important because actually this is, a, this is my paraphrase of what Singer says and Singer is not suggesting that the infant doesn't know that it's alive in the moment he's suggesting that it doesn't have a sense of itself existing over time so his point is it doesn't know that it's alive and it doesn't know it's living over time therefore it doesn't miss the fact that it's been that that living has been stopped I thought I'd change that and Peter Singer says this in, in practical ethics Practical Ethics is not primarily a book about infanticide. Infanticide is a tiny part of what he's writing about. Um, and uh, a lot of what he says is extremely valuable, um, and it's, all of it is extremely well put together. His work on infanticide less so than the others. But um, I wouldn't want you to think that the entire book was on infanticide and why we should kill children. But this is what he says. Continued existence, he says, cannot be in the interests of a being who never has had the concept of continuing self. That is, it's never been able to conceive of itself as existing over time. And then we move into a slightly odd statement. If a train instantly killed an infant, he says, the death wouldn't have been contrary to the interests of the infant because the infant would never have had the concept of existing over time. I'm not proposing to uh, drill down into that, but I do want you just to hold that. We'll come back to that slide a couple of times. Okay, perhaps so what I will point out at this point is that there's a lot of knots here. There's a lot of things that the infant can't do. Um, 
a being who never has had the concept of continuum self, has never been able to conceive of itself as existing over time. If, it, um, if the train killed the infant, the death would not have been contrary to the interests of the infant. The infant would never have had the concept of existing. There's lots of things here that the infant can't do or doesn't have. There's actually not very much about what the infant can do or does have, which segues perfectly into my second point, which is this. Let's talk about a little bit about what the infant actually is. To me, it seems perverse to base a way of looking at infants primarily on what we know infants are not. We don't do that with anybody else. Why would we do that with infants? So we know that an infant is dependent on others. And for the way that it perceives things, I turn to this really very nice book. I don't know if any of you have come across Alison Gopnik. She's a, <coughs> an infant neuropsychologist. Um, she a, um, has a number of scientific publications to her name, uh, and her specialism is um, functional psychology. In other words, she, she knows the how that she knows about the correlation between the way the brain is constructed and the way it develops, and how that maps onto changing thought patterns uh, and the infant's own understanding of itself. So she's um, coming at this from a very empirical base, but certainly this book is expressed in very philosophical and, and, and uh, moral language. Um, it's, it's easy to read. I would strongly recommend it. Um, She's, she's also uh, she's a very good writer. She's also uh, got a good sense of humour, as you'll you'll see. And she she cites a number of articles, and I'm not for a moment going to try, try and um, do an entire review of, of the neuropsychiatric literature pertaining to sorry neuropsychological literature pertaining to infants. But I will just mention a few because they're relevant and they illustrate important things. Um, this paper shows that um, even on day one. Neonates are able to uh, distinguish between their own cry and the cry of other infants. Now that's important because one of the uh, we, we, when we talk about independence and dependence, we're often talking about moral dependence, the influence of other people. But actually, uh, when you go back into what the what Boethius and these other people who who were originally trying to drill down into what made an individual an individual, what made a person a person, what they were really talking about wasn't, wasn't so much um, separation from influence, although that was a big part of it. It was the, the, the understanding of oneself as being a separate individual, as being a separate being. Um, and I'm not remotely trying to pretend that an infant has the same view of itself as an adult does, but certainly even when infants are born, they do have an understanding of themselves as being different from other individuals, and certainly other, uh, different other species as well. Um, this, this is actually a review, but one of the articles that, uh, to which it refers <coughs> shows that the infant also is able to distinguish differently. So if, it, 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 if the infant brushes against its own arm, it will respond differently to that physical contact from if somebody else brushes against it in precisely the same way. You might say, well, <laughs> um, but actually, if you think about what that means, that again means that the infant already has some construct of itself as a, as a being in, uh, in its own right. Even that phrase in its own right is, is dodgy, but that the idea that an infant uh, has no understanding of itself 
as an entity is, is not correct, empirically. I love this one. I really hope it's right. Um, this was a, a study that showed uh, that babies born in Germany cry with a German accent. Babies born in France cry with a French accent. Um, it's, a, I mean, it's, it's really beautifully done. I, I, I have to say I was sceptical about this and I, um, I went online to try to see what the response had been. Um, many people expressed scepticism. Interestingly, none of them said why. They just said, I don't believe it. Um, it, it the, nobody had provided a, a good reason why this study might be wrong, why it was wrong in its conclusions, whether its technique was wrong. Um, but it is very interesting because what it implies, of course, is that babies are able to learn. I mean, in this case, this was, this was their newborn cry. So these were, this, the implication here was that babies had already been learning in the womb and had already picked up um, uh, some sense accent is too strong, but this, the, the intonation was different, that the, that the, um, uh, um, just the way that the language lilted was different. And I've also heard it said that cows in the West Country of England move with a West Country accent as well, so it may not be, um, this doesn't necessarily <laughs> indicate huge, higher, sophisticated, higher powers, but it does indicate the capacity to learn from the moment you're born. And learning implies something about your understanding of time. It doesn't mean you have to understand it, but you, you must exist in time in order to have learned something, because you're building on it. Now, and again, it doesn't have to be a conscious understanding, but the idea that a baby only lives in the moment, I don't, I don't, I don't think empirically we can support that, not just from that study. Um, I put this one in because, I, again, I really like this one, because what this showed, um, this is interesting because it was taking a primarily ethical view, a primarily philosophical view, uh, and then backing it up with the neuroscience, whereas the others were starting with the neuroscience. But what they have shown is that, um, what they are positing is that personhood is in fact not something that we possess or don't possess, but something which is attributed to us by other people. That actually personhood is a construct of perception and of interaction. Actually, I must say, for me, that makes sense. I'm, uh, not just from that, but actually, it, from first principles, that seems to make sense. We, um, a person is not just what you are, but it's how other people see you. And, of course, the origin of the word person itself um, has a lot to do with that. You can see where I'm going with that as well, can't you? Because if that's true, then it might be possible to divorce that moral status we call person entirely from the characteristics of the individual to whom uh, it is annexed. Okay, and then finally this one, and this is the one I'm going to focus on because again this is by um, uh, Alison Gopnik, and uh, what she points out is something more radical. She says, yeah, infants think differently from adults. They're aware differently from adults. They're a whole lot better. You can see why babies are more conscious than we are. I told you she had a sense of humor. And she says this. She says, infants are highly aware of the world. They're born incredibly aware. But she says their awareness is like a lantern 
rather than a spotlight. She says, an infant awareness is, you go into a room, you have your lantern, it lights everything. Be like what C.S. Lewis said about Christianity in the sun. Yeah. It's not the thing you look at, it throws the light on other things, it helps you see other things. A spotlight is what you use when you want to see a lot of detail about one thing. And the good thing about a spotlight is just that. It's really good at giving you information about one particular thing. bad thing about a spotlight? You don't see anything else at that moment. good thing about a lantern? You see everything. bad thing? Yeah, you don't see it very well. And what she's saying is, actually, if, you know, if we only had lantern, uh, if, we, if we never had any spotlights, we would be... Um, poking around in the half gloom. But if all we had was spotlights, we would miss half the things that we need to see. So she says this, she says, the infant's lantern awareness of itself, she uses more scientific terms, uh, exogenous attention, and um, this idea that the infant is constantly looking <coughs> at what's going on, but unable to focus on any one thing to register what it's saying. What, it, what it's seeing. But the infant is therefore very aware of itself as part of the universe because it sees itself, it sees everything else, it, it's aware of what's going on. Very aware. It's also aware, we've already seen this, it's aware to a certain extent of itself as distinct from others. And, and I, I, I don't think we can escape that. I don't think anybody seriously thinks that infants aren't already learning by the time they're born. Um, uh, I mean, that's, uh, again, that's an interesting debate which I'm not planning to go into, but um, I think in some sense we have to accept that uh, most normal infants by the time they're born have already been learning for a while, even if it's as basic as learning, uh, practicing breathing. Okay, so in that case, um, we're starting to get an idea of how we might need to amend the cuff to make it fit children, aren't we? We're starting to think not just what children aren't, but we're starting to think about what, sorry, what infants aren't, but we're starting to think a little bit about what they are. What might my cut down cuff look like, my infant shaped uh, three principles look like? Well, what I've described, um, I haven't yet found a better term for it. Um, uh, and I'm, again, I'm aware that as soon as you attach a label to something, it turns out somebody's already used it, or else somebody's already given a very good label usually in Greek, to the same concept. But let's, for the time being, just call it relationality. Let's call it a relational account. So what I mean by that is that the infant isn't separating itself, isn't saying there's me in here and there's the rest of the universe out there, but the, inf the infant sees itself as being part of what's going on, which is uh, dominated not just by its physical surroundings, but by the, the people around it, in particular, particularly, of course, its mother. Relational view. So you'll remember that the problem we came up with justice was the problem of reciprocity. Um, one of the arguments that's sometimes made for the value of an infant is the argument from potentiality. This infant isn't going to help society now, but just give them 18 years and watch their smoke. Yeah, sort of um, metachronous uh, reciprocity. Reciprocity not, here, not in the here and now, but in what the child will become. And actually, people that have, in, in, in my view, very properly, argued that potentiality is not necessarily relevant because you're, um, unless you're going to argue that 
there is nobody else to take that child's place. You're dealing with what the infant knows now. You're not dealing, the infant doesn't know what's going to happen later, nobody does. An argument for potentiality, I think there are arguments to be made, but that they're, they're not the ones that I think are usually made for potentiality. But here, we don't need to do that. Because what Goblin is arguing is that actually there's a complementarity. That actually the things that infants can do complement the things that adults can do. And I do like the way she's put this, which is why. Children, she says, are the research and development department of the human species, the blue sky guys, the brainstormers. You can see that was written a while, but you don't have to say brainstormers anymore. I think people um, worry that it uh, refers to epilepsy. You'd think she'd know that, being <laughs> a neurologist, wouldn't you? Adults, she says, are production and marketing, and you could almost hear the slight disapproval in her voice as she said, adults are marketing. So her point here is that we need both. She says, we need people, and she, she, she makes it a number of times in different ways in her book and in her papers. Um, she says, from an evolutionary perspective, she says, you can't just have one of these. You can't say, all we need is production and marketing. You can't say, all we need is spotlight thinking. You need both. Actually, of course, if we didn't have infants, human race wouldn't survive for very long anyway. But her point is that even in the moment, this isn't an argument for potentiality, even in the moment, what infants do is important because, not in spite of the fact that they think differently. In a relational account, infants are already part of society. We don't have to go the reciprocity view, the reciprocity uh, route. Um, because the infant nature is seen to be complementary in the moment, in this moment now, to the adult nature. So this isn't, these aren't trainee adults. These aren't infants who will eventually become proper people. These are people who are already people. Autonomy. The problem with autonomy, uh, you will remember, it was um, that it relies on that can I convince you that autonomy, as it's usually understood, um, depends on that sort of spotlight rationality? Autonomy is uh, rationality as we usually think of it, and there's a, again, it's one of those words that can be defined very differently, but I think most people see the idea of rationality as correctly linking cause and effect. Yeah? If this, then this, then this, then this, and ultimately that. And if all those steps are correct, if my starting point is correct and all those steps are correct, then my conclusion will be correct. And that's rationality. But that's a very analytical account of rationality, isn't it? And that requires quite a lot of spotlights. It doesn't work very well with lantern thinking. But, and O'Neill sets out a very nice relational way of looking at autonomy. She says autonomy is usually identified with independence. Sometimes that leads to ethically dubious or disastrous actions. And I think we know that to be true, don't we? We know that people sometimes want things that are bad. We know that people sometimes make bad decisions um, that everybody knows will be bad, and the conclusions are just as bad as everybody thought they were. It's a very interesting debate as to whether autonomy has any uh, anything other than instrumental value. In other words, does the idea of being autonomous have any moral value in itself, or is its moral value only in 
what people actually do as a result of having autonomy. But at the very least, we have to acknowledge O'Neill's point here, don't we? Autonomy is identified, it sometimes leads to ethically dubious or disastrous action. Its ethical credentials, she said, are not actually self-evident. The reason I've said, because sometimes everybody loses. Trust, she says, is surely more important, and particularly so for any ethically adequate practice of medicine, science, and biotechnology. So um, for those who are medics here, that will absolutely ring true. For those who've been patients, or injury, won't it? For those who've been parents, um, actually what you do when you're not well is you want somebody to look after you. When your child is unwell, they don't want to be, they don't want their autonomy to be maximised in the sense of being independent, they actually want to be looked after. And autonomy, and Beecham and Childress make this point um, very clearly, Autonomy, they say, is a duty, respect for autonomy is a duty of clinicians, but it isn't, um, sorry, it's a right of patients, so it's a duty of clinicians, but it isn't a duty of patients. People don't have to um, make the decision themselves. But that also makes clear that Beecham and Childress think that the only way to respect autonomy is actually to do what somebody says. And actually, that's not the only way to be autonomous. I can be autonomous by saying, I don't know, I want you to make the decision for me. Or perhaps more often, I don't know, Doc, what would you advise? Now, if that's, if that's a denial of autonomy, um, then I think we need to rethink what autonomy is. And the conclusion we might come to, I think, is this one. So on a relational account, autonomy can actually, um, ex rather than being inimical to the idea of dependence, uh, it can actually express dependence. I can express my autonomy by saying, I want, I want you to make the decision for me. And that means that infants can do that. Because infants, that's what they do all the time. Maybe they've got no choice, but what they actually do in practice is they trust other people. Okay, let's look at interests. And this is our second small um, diversion. Um, beneficence and non-maleficence, as I've suggested, uh, usually are usually conceived in medical practice as a balance of burden and benefit. Uh, and actually, I, like many paediatricians, I think, have, like many, many medics generally, have fallen into a bad habit of using the phrase best interests. And I was rightly reprimanded in absentia by Dominic when I was reading his book. But of course, best interests is not what we're talking about here. Uh, best interest just is just one of a range of interests, um, uh, interest judgments that you can make. But we do conceive it usually as balancing the burden and the benefit. And then the immediate problem is whose burden and benefit. Now, if you're an adult physician, that's relatively straightforward. Or even then, it may not always be. You've got a patient; they're, they're your responsibility. But if you're a paediatrician, certainly if you're always looking after infants. The infant isn't the only person here. They may be our primary responsibility, um, but they're not our only responsibility. But they can't express their interests. So we've got a problem. I'm going to, that's the diversion that I'm just going to make very briefly. Why should parents speak for their infant? Remember that quote I gave you at the beginning? The interests of the child or the infant are the same as the interests of the parents. That's, that goes without saying, doesn't it? Well, first of all, let's start with acknowledging that somebody's got to acknowledge, that somebody's got to express these interests. Because although there are some objective in interests 
I would argue that our objective, in other words, and I would characterise those as needs, there are some things that people have to have. I think even that is, uh, certainly that can be debated by some people, but most of us would say there are some things that are simply bad for you. So if you are a fruitarian parent, fruitarians believe that um, if, that if you eat fruit alone and nothing else, you will um, be much healthier and survive. The truth is that if you eat fruit and nothing else, then if you're a child, you will die. And you will die uncomfortably. Um, there is an objective sense in which the interests of an infant are not served by being served fruit. So it doesn't depend on the perception of the infant. What the infant wants isn't the point here. Um, but. Even then, somebody has to articulate what those interests are. I mean, I just did it. It's not I articulated the interests of uh, the infants of fruitarian parents by saying it, it's not right, it's not good for the infant, it's not in the interests of the infant to have fruit and nothing else. But even more complicated are the other interests, what, what we might term preferences. Um, I'm using preferences in my sense and not in Singer's. Interestingly, Singer describes preferences as, quotes needs, wants, and desires. So he specifically doesn't draw the distinction that I'm making here. But we can agree that there are some interests that are subjective. So if somebody gives me pineapple, you know, um, oh, if somebody gives Renee pineapple, I don't know, she might like pineapple, she says, yum, yum, great, it's in her interest to have pineapple. Somebody gives me pineapple, I'm going to throw up. Um, I can't stand this stuff. Um, my interests are different from Renee's, not because of anything fundamental about us, but from the way that we see the world. More complicatedly, if somebody puts me in an office that's painted pale green, it won't bother me at all because I'm colorblind. Rennie, who's not colorblind, might not like an office that's pale green. So there are interests that depend on what you're like. Um, and they depend on the perception by the infant. But even then, because the infant can't express them. You know, the, the word infant means somebody who can't speak. Somebody has to articulate those interests, uh, those subjective interests, even if we accept, as I hope we now do, that the infant can have such interests. So actually, the poor parents, we're asking them to do an awful lot of things. We're asking them to, uh, we, we ask them because they're the nearest adult to hand, and that I think was what my colleague was saying. Well, somebody's got to articulate these interests, somebody's got to give permission. Parents are the obvious people, aren't they? And, and that's right. There's another sense in which it's my child, it's my baby. You, you do what I say for my baby because I own that baby, in some sense. And we might, we might bristle at the idea that uh, there's some truth in that, isn't there? I mean, in the sense that um, if the baby has to be owned by somebody, it should be its parents. Uh, and then there's the, the carer. Uh, and this goes back to the deontological argument that um, Beecham and Chandra are making. By being in a certain relationship, I may feel that I have an obligation to behave uh, in a way that furthers the interests of, the, of that infant. Very interesting, of course, because it has very little to do with the biological relationship. Mm -hmm. We see plenty of parents who don't care for their infants, and we see plenty of um, people who aren't biologically related, foster parents, adoptive parents, who do. Um, so we're not talking about ties of blood in, in the way that um, principalism suggests, but we are talking about relationship. Proxy, the idea that um, I will tell you what I would want in that infant's place. And then finally, advocate, I will tell you what I think 
my infant wants because I know the infant best. Now, actually, that's five very... Uh, they, they might all come to the same conclusion, they often do, but actually that's quite a complex set of things to ask parents to do and to sort through. I suspect that even as philosophers you might not always have explicated those different roles. Someone's got to do it. This is my child. If it's my child, the infant's interests are my interests. And I've certainly got a couple of patients where the families have said, we're sick of caring for this disabled child. We want to make sure that when she next has an operation, if she has, uh, if there are any problems, she's allowed to die. And they imagine that they can do that. They imagine that they have the ethical and also legal right to do that. The obligation to, for further interests because I have opted to care for this child. That's, that may be parents, but what about people working in a children's hospice? Uh, a large proportion of the kids we see in children's hospices have, uh, are disabled infants. So until now we've been talking about normal infants. There are some infants who certainly do not have any of the uh, capacities I've described, and yet people will feel they have an obligation to care for them. I think more often people are speaking as proxies. This is what I want you to do. Um, if, I, if I were in this child situation, it would hurt me that I can't walk. It would hurt me to know that I'm having seizures. It would hurt me to know da 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 da. It would, what I see in front of me, I interpret as being intolerable. Because if it were me doing it, it would be intolerable. Proxy. And then finally, the advocate. And this is really difficult. I think that if I were my infant child, this is, and if I had the interests I now have, and were in some way able to articulate them, this is what I would articulate. Very, very difficult, and I'm going to suggest to you, impossible. In fact, I don't need to suggest it to you. It's been suggested already much better. Um, and uh, this is Dominic's book. Um, I, would have, I, I'm I would have wanted to quote it anyway, but I'm delighted to give a plug for it. Um, I, haven't, I haven't read the whole book, but the, uh, the chapter on um, uh, competing interests sets this out really nicely, not just, uh, I've been talking about interests competing the infant's interests versus the adult's interests, but actually of course there may be interests, the, the, the um, infant will have interests that work in one direction and in the other direction which will compete, and so will the family. He's, he talks here about the commentist machine, which is a great idea. I, I, I couldn't resist and proposing my own machine, and a machine I was going to propose was, was the Doolittle machine. You remember Dr. Doolittle could talk to animals. Well, in my machine, my fictitious machine, as a, as a sort of offshoot of the research that led to the ground, uh, groundbreaking Carmentis machine, uh, I'm delighted to say they also came up with the Doolittle machine, which allows us to read the minds of newborn babies, normal neonates, all neonates, normal adults. So we are actually in a position to know exactly what the infant wants. We can absolutely define, using the Doolittle machine, the interests that an infant has, the subjective and the objective interests. Objective because they're objective, we can articulate them. Subjective because we can now find out that the infant can talk to us through the Doolittle machine. The question is, does that mean that we have resolved the question of the infant's interests? And the answer, of course, is that we have not because actually you cannot completely separate the interests of the baby from the interests of the family. 
because they don't exist as completely separable, isolated beings. They exist as a group, as a dyad or a triad or a f what we call, we sometimes call a family. Actually, if you are a baby and your mother is absolutely shattered because you are up all night, you will be adversely impacted by the fact that she's tired. You cannot separate them. I don't mean you can't separate them because technically we haven't got the technology. The Doolittle machine has solved that. I mean that conceptually you can't separate them. The inf interests of the infant, I would argue, cannot be separated from the, inf the interests of its family. cannot always be separated. So in a relational view, though, they don't need to be because we can, be c we can conceive them as those of the parent-child dyad. I use the word dyad. Um, partly because I just like the word, it's such a nice word, <laughs> it feels nice, and partly because it's the word that was used by Douglas Winnicott, who, was, um, who really made this, he, he was a paediatrician who was also a psychoanalyst, and he made this, this parent-child, it was really a mother-child dyad, was the unit of his analytical concern. We don't need to resolve it because they're so entwined that they can't realistically be explicated, or even in theory. So, small diversion, but we're back now on track. There's no obvious reason I would suggest to you why a biographical narrative that results from this kind of lantern awareness that infants have, this lower level light, but much wider light. There's no obvious reason why it should uh, be a less valid source of subjective interests, meaning about its life, uh, as one that results from spotlight awareness. And I think if Alison Gopnik were here, she might say, well, maybe it's worth more. It's interesting to think about what the world would be like if adults had the lantern awareness and neonates had the spotlight awareness, so that we regarded it as actually uh, a weakness of infants that all they could do was focus on one thing at a time. I'm quite sure that then we would have made up a, medical ethical, a set of medical eth ethical principles that privileged um, lantern awareness over spotlight awareness. So we're moving towards our end. Most idealist accounts of moral status, I would say, suggest to you are adult cuffs that will inevitably underread value in infants in a way that is not dependent on anything that we're trying to measure about infants. The ideal infant is neither rational nor independent. They, they don't, they're not spotlight aware. We know that. Uh, I mean, there's no, there's no point in trying to pretend anything different, but they are aware of themselves. The infant is aware of itself in a way that is equally valid I would argue, as a source of meaning. Because as a meaning, as a source of meaning about yourself, unless we're going down a, a highly objectivist route, objective accuracy isn't the point. It's the narrative that you tell about yourself. And that's sub subjective. It doesn't have to be right in any objective sense. And I've suggested to you that in principalism, if we were to cut that cuff down so it fitted children a little better, we'd find that reciprocity was expressed relationally as complementarity, that we have different skills, but for evolutionary and teleological reasons, society needs both. We're not one, it's not a question of one uh, being an immature version, version of the other, it's two sets of skills that we both, that we all need. Autonomy is expressed relationally as trust, and that really rings true for me. And finally, that uh, interests can be expressed relationally as those of an infant as part of the family. Now, Lots of definitions of the word family. Um, um, an adult palliative care physician called Ira Biok 
uh, defined it uh, clinically very nicely once, very concisely. He said, the family, he said, is those who care. It's those who care. It's those who are impacted on, those who interact and are aware of the person in question, in this case, the infant. So let's, just before we finish, does anything strike you about this when we looked at it before? Continuing existence cannot be in the interests of a being who never has had the concept of continuing self. That is, never has been able to conceive of itself as existing over time. This is the key thing. If a train instantly killed an infant, it wouldn't have been against the infant's best interests because the infant would never have had the concept of existing over time. Well, any of you who are, who are familiar with, the, the, with Epictetus, whose name I find extraordinarily difficult to pronounce, and the Stoics will recognise that he's already. If you, you or I were standing on the track and a train hit us and we didn't know it was coming, we wouldn't have lost anything either. While we're alive, we didn't know we were going to die, and when we're dead, we don't know. Um, Epictetus thought he'd actually. Did he, he, that the basis of the Stoic philosophy was you don't worry about it, don't worry about it. While you're alive, you're not dead. When you're dead, you don't care anymore. Why, why worry? So I'm using that really as an introduction to the possibility that a lot of the things that we've said about infants, and I hope I've persuaded you, are actually also true about adults. That actually this relational view that I've talked about is not, in fact, only applicable to infants. It works well for infants, but that might be because it just works better. To return one last time to the blood, cuff, blood pressure cuff metaphor. What's interesting is that if you use an adult-sized blood pressure cuff on an adult who happens to be very small, it will also underread. And that's very important because what that's the, the reason that it um, is inaccurate is not a characteristic that is unique to infants or children. It's a characteristic that adults and children have in common. And I'm afraid I think that's true of what we've talked about here as well. I don't think that any of us is fully rational. <laughs> Least of all when we're in an interaction with medicine. And we sure as heck aren't independent. I'm not even sure that I want to live in a world where I'm independent. I want something better than that. When I'm ill, I want my wife to take care of me. I want her to make some decisions for me. And I think that most of us are the same. So I'm not sure that an account that relies on this rather isolationist view is valid in adults either. Last word on Gopnik was that she said, What's interesting is that uh, when you put an adult into a situation that's similar to that of a newborn baby, by which she meant that it's, been it's never been before. So you go to a foreign country, for example. You all have this experience. You're driving back from the airport. You notice everything. Yeah, the, the color of the street signs, the way that the, the script, the, the language is, the, the different trees, the different animals. Wrong side of the road. Yeah, we've all done it. And that's because you are also thinking in that lantern way. We need both. But I would ask this, is anyone really rational and independent in the way that an idealist account of medical ethics demands?
Thank you.